Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Welcome to another episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, Vice President at Trapello, and today we have Christine Ashcraft, CEO of Uscript. Thank you for joining us for the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jerome. For sure. Give us a little bit of your background and your vision of how you created Uscript. Sure. So I have been in the precision medicine space, specifically pharmacogenomics, for about 20 years now. Uh, actually started my journey uh, at a lab, Genelex, that was originally started in 1987 uh, as one of the first crime labs in the country with a National Institute of Justice grant. Jeez. And when I joined in 2000, uh, they were looking for something that leveraged their core competency in providing high-quality genetic testing. And way back then, there was an article in Fortune magazine about a boy named Michael who had died of an overdose because like one in 20 patients, he had a DNA variation that in concert with his other medications made his drug unsafe for him. Hmm. Um, so like good molecular biology geeks, uh, we went to PubMed and started looking at just how common these variations were, how many drugs they impacted, and became one of the first CLIA-accredited labs to provide that testing. And uh, naively thought because of the level of information, it would be standard of care in five, six years <laughs> tops, yeah. um, but did learn uh, an awful lot uh, and started down this path, I think, that is fairly typical of initially providing a PDF report. Uh, and what we saw is that the knowledge was advancing so quickly that that quickly became outdated. And it also didn't take into account other medications that the patient was taking. Uh, and so in the early 2000s, I was lucky enough to stumble across a software program that had originally been created by a couple of brilliant psychiatrists that ran into cytochrome-based drug interactions. Those are the same uh, cytochromes we do genetic tests for. Uh, and because of the way they had designed the program, we were able to upgrade this software to detect genetic interactions as well and started providing that as a web-based tool. Of course, if you work much with physicians, uh, you know what they said next. Uh, hmm. That's nice. <laughs> Put it in my clinical workflow or I'm not going to use it. Right. Uh, and so um, I realized in 2016 that we were getting closer to a tipping point for pharmacogenomics. And for pharmacogenomics to really scale, a tool like Uscript uh, needed to be in the clinical workflow, uh, needed to flag when a patient needed to be tested, and also provide real-time information on how to optimize drugs and doses. Uh, so we spun that technology out of the lab, uh, and we're now embedded in the workflow in Epic, Cerner, uh, all scripts uh, and on our working to really uh, make sure that that information is used not just once when a PDF report comes out, but any time a medication decision is made the rest of a patient's life. I think that's incredible. And when you were sharing kind of the story of, of how you you aid physicians in, in getting this information to make better treatment decisions, I thought it was fascinating. So the title of your talk, when I heard you speak at the Precision Medicine Leaders Summit uh, in San Diego was Lessons Learned from 20 Years 
in precision medicine. And I think it's a good place to start because one of the lessons that like kind of slapped me over the head was in order to move precision medicine into routine clinical practice, we must increase physician knowledge and belief about genomic medicine. Mm -hmm. And you know, that, that I've never heard it quite stated like that. We tend to assume that physicians know this or know how to use this. Uh, and that's the knowledge part, but it's for those who've been in the industry for quite a while, we know that it's really more of the belief that it actually helps. So like, where are we now and how far do we need to go? Um, well, if you're familiar with you, the adoption curve, I would say we are uh, now on the start of the early majority, um, which is an improvement. Uh, when I first started talking about pharmacogenomics with physicians in 2000, they said, pharmaco what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get that anymore. Um, so people are certainly aware of genomics and pharmacogenomics in terms of Uh, knowing it's a thing and it's out there. Uh, I think that Obama's precision medicine um, initiative really helped in that arena. But there was a survey that just came out recently uh, that 23% of physicians said that they didn't, uh, that they had comfort talking about genetics as a risk factor. Um, So that means three quarters did not feel comfortable. But when they had personal genetic testing, that jumped to 59%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're seeing a lot more direct-to-consumer genetic testing and a lot more health systems that are doing comprehensive genetic testing, uh, like uh, Geisinger, for example. Um, so I think we're, we're getting there, <laughs> but we, we still have a long, long way to go. Yeah. One of the chief executives from one of the major uh, mm-hmm. gene sequencing, com- uh, not gene sequencing companies, but those that make the platform. Um, he made a bold predicament that said within five years, mm-hmm. uh, pharmacogenetic testing will be routine. People are, it's just going to be a normal part of the workflow. And if it wasn't for the fact that I heard this five and 10, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. I would kind of be more enthusiastic about that. What are your thoughts around us being there in five years? Because we do have the tools that can put it at the point of care. Right. Um, I think two big things that make that uh, possible. One, the cost of pharmacogenomic testing and genomic testing has come down dramatically, right? So when we first started offering pharmacogenomic testing, it was $1,000 to do a comprehensive panel. Um, It costs, you know, under $200 to do a comprehensive panel now, and and that's going to continue to uh, come down. Uh, We now also have the tools to flag patients for appropriate testing and provide real-time clinical decision support on how to act on that information in the clinical workflow. Um, and we're also seeing, at least in pharmacogenomics, expanded coverage. So United Healthcare issued a coverage decision that went live October 1st, um, covering psychiatric uh, panels. Uh, most of the Medicare Max, Palmetto, Noridian, CGS, have issued draft local coverage decisions that dramatically expand uh, coverage for pharmacogenomic testing. Um, so I think that we are definitely moving in that direction. And what that enables us to do uh, is really validate at scale that this keeps patients from having adverse drug events that put them in the hospital, that put them in the emergency room. Uh, We've published some studies, and in one, we saw a 71% reduction in ER visits and 39% reduction in hospitalizations. So I, I think as more and more clinicians see the impact this has, 
on improvement in patient care, uh, the more widely that will be adopted. So. I think that's tremendous. One of the other lessons that you said you've learned out of the many, I mean, I can't pick them all, Christine, but but <laughs> the, the highlights for me, you said that um, we must prevent disease silos mm-hmm. um, because disease silos prevent progress and mm-hmm. in some cases create harm. Can you tell us a little bit more what you mean by that? Sure. So a lot of the pharmacogenomic testing historically focused on drug gene pairs uh, and even some of the coverage decisions now or by disease like psychiatry, like I just mentioned. The issue is that these pharmacogenetic markers uh, impact drugs across all disease states. And part of the reason behind that is that's how you get reimbursed. You pick a disease and you show that you can impact you know, some outcome associated with the disease. And that's how you get reimbursement. Um, The issue is, you know, for pharmacogenomics and genomics in general, um, for germline genomics, that that information isn't going to change the rest of a patient's life. And it's not just for that drug gene pair or that disease. So if you take Plavix, for example, uh, Plavix is often given for patients that have had a heart attack or stroke to prevent them from having another one. And Plavix doesn't work for you if you're a 2C19 poor metabolizer. Uh, And so we just did a quick analysis in our database and said, well, how many patients on Plavix had another 2C19 medication that had a significant interaction? 20%. And 60% had a significant interaction for another gene. Um, And so if you just focus on these pairs or on these disease states, you're missing the impact that that can have across the entire patient um, mm. because they're not just a psychiatric patient. They're not just a cancer patient. You know, they're, they're, they're a human that has cancer and often uh, depression, pain, you know, uh, comorbidities like heart disease. And so if you're dealing with genetic information, you need to make sure that that's applied anywhere it's going to impact that patient's care. So it, in large part, it really is going to require a paradigm shift, not only in healthcare, but but from the individual provider, because they think in terms of silos, because I am a, you know, left ear specialist and this person is a, a right toe, you know, doctor. Um, and for years, the conversation with precision medicine is being treat the patient, not the disease, right? Mm-hmm. Look at the molecular expression and see what information can help us make better and more effective treatment decisions. But, you know, what what do you hear with respect to, you know, providers out there adopting that type of mindset? I mean, you're, you're correct. It's a paradigm shift. You know, we're moving away from here is how we treat this disease, you know, option one, two, three, to here is the best course of action for this N of one patient. Uh, and so it is going to be a retraining. Um, I think that, you know, pharmacogenomics, for example, is required uh, in pharmacy schools now. Uh, genomic education is expanding in medical schools now. A uh, number of health systems are providing uh, continuing education around genomics. But we do have to shift the way that we think about how we provide care. It's, it's not going to be easy. Yeah. Do you do, do you go into hospital systems or healthcare networks to do education around this? 
Uh, I sure do. I actually was uh, recently invited to uh, give the keynote for the Medical College of Wisconsin's uh, genomics conference. Um, so as part of a U-Script deployment, so when we integrate into a health system, uh, we send a team in, uh, including uh, some of our clinical pharmacists, to train the trainer. Uh, and walk through not just, hey, here's this clinical decision support tool, but here are all the steps you need to take uh, to integrate this as a program uh, to optimize medication in your health system. So it's you can't just toss technology at people. Um, you have to go through the steps of the change uh, management and training as well. For sure. For sure. One of the more important lessons... Um, that you mentioned is that it is important to prioritize EMR integration. And I think, Christine, we could probably do just one conversation or podcast just on that alone. Yeah. But um, you had a lot in that, but I know your talk was only so long, but, you know, why is it important to prioritize EMR integration of this information? Sure. Well, if you think about it, you know, historically lab results it wasn't the worst thing if they were misplaced um, because you would just do that lab again. But when you're talking about genetic information, uh, especially germline genetics, that information isn't going to change the rest of your life. And so mm -hmm. that lab result needs to be reaccessed anytime it will impact your care. Uh, one story that I heard when I was uh, speaking at a state of reform conference in Hawaii, which is healthcare uh, policy and, and, and reimbursement conference, uh, this woman came up to me afterwards and she's like, you know, I had a patient uh, who had had this psychiatric pharmacogenomic testing done and she was a 2C19 poor metabolizer. Uh, and so it said which psychiatric medications probably wouldn't be a good choice for her. And thankfully, I knew that she shouldn't be on Plavix, which has nothing to do with this depression report. So ideally, if you have this inner information integrated into an EHR, you can alert people <laughs> when a patient is on a dangerous medication or, mm. you know, beyond uh, pharmacogenomics if they have higher risk for certain diseases. Um but the, the first step there is, is prioritizing the, the discrete storage of the information so you can provide real-time clinical decision support. I think the other key thing about uh, EMR integration is that the technology is advancing so quickly. Our understanding of this is advancing so quickly um, that you have to have access to real-time evidence. Um, I was actually chatting with my friend uh, Luke at Optum the other day, and they had one of their pharmacists look at a publication on the evidence around pharmacogenetic genes for psychiatry that was published one year ago, and a lot of it was already outdated. There were a number of genes that are now considered uh, clinically actionable that weren't a year ago. Mm. Uh, and so if you don't prioritize the ability to deliver real-time clinical decision support on that quickly evolving uh, evidence, uh, it's, it's going to get outdated quick. Right? Yeah. One of the big conversations at this past ASCO was we need to be more interconnected with the way that we share our data. And the analogy that was used is, and we can travel anywhere in the world and we can access our investments. We can access our, our bank records, some of the most intimate details of our life, but we can't even access our own healthcare records. Right. right. And the, the argument has been that, um, you know, the sensitive information, uh, especially around genetic or genomic information, mm -hmm. 
um, the healthcare systems kind of hold it close to the vest, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there is a debate around who owns the data, right? The lab says they own the data, the healthcare system owns the data, but recently a representative from CMS said that's a big misunderstanding. It's the patient's data. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> you know, correct. how can we f- better facilitate, you're talking about a tipping point in, in a paradigm change, how can we better facilitate this conversation with healthcare systems to help them understand that it's important for EMR integration, but also to make that information accessible. Yeah. Well, I think they're going to have to, whether um, they want to or not. So the Office of the National Coordinator is uh, pushing um, to make that mandatory that the patient will have access to that information. Um, I've always wondered, and I'm, I'm, I'm not the expert, why we don't have a patient identifier nationally. Uh, you know, you had to go sign up for your social security number at one point, right? Yeah. Why don't you go sign up for your patient ID? <laughs> so we don't have this problem with um, matching patient records across uh, systems. Um, but I think it's it's highly important that that information be available uh, and and go beyond the walls of different health systems. Uh, I, I went in, you know, to the doctor. I was just in the doctor yesterday getting my flu shot. And they said, oh, we want to give you a tetanus shot too. And I was like, no, I had one of those three years ago. But it wasn't in their electronic health record because we switched health plans. And mm. I have a different doctor, right? <laughs> right. But um, that's a simple thing. Uh, you know, probably wouldn't have hurt me to have another tetanus shot. Um, but um, more important things are getting missed all the time um, because we're not sharing patient information the way we need to. Right? Yeah. In addition to the EMR integration, uh, I think even further upstream is the ability to deliver and store data discreetly. You talk about that. How can that in the big picture of things help the precision medicine ecosystem? Sure. So I think historically, you know, we've looked at prospective randomized control trials as the gold standard. Um, The issue is they're so tightly controlled um, that you don't see what the impact is in the real world. So if we have repositories of genomic information and we've taken down these siloed walls uh, for, you know, patient information, outcomes, dosage, what drugs worked, what drugs didn't work, um, and are able to amass all of that information, that's the only way we start getting to this N of one that we talk about, uh, where we can truly optimize things. We need to be able to um, put machine learning and artificial intelligence layers on that so we can get more and more precise uh, in terms of what treatments are going to work for what people. Um, but the first step in that is is really making all of that data safely <laughs> available for analysis. Yeah. You talked about what it was going to take to really bring this information forward and the words routine practice. And you mentioned the payers. Mm-hmm. How do you think the delivery of discrete data will help payers mm-hmm. become more receptive to paying for these tests? Right. Um, I think that one of the the things that's interesting, again, about genomic information is that information can be used throughout a patient's lifetime to optimize care in a lot of different situations. So ideally, um, you would only pay for a robust pharmacogenomic panel 
one time. That information would be stored discreetly uh, and then used going forward to uh, optimize drug and dose selection. So there was a study that came out last year that put the cost of non-optimized medications at $528 billion. That's more than we spend on the drugs themselves or any major chronic disease. So if we do a better job of that, it'll dramatically reduce that number uh, and also improve patient outcomes. I think everybody has a story, uh, either a personal one or a friend or family member that has had either a bad reaction to a medication or had a medication not work for them. Uh, and that's just in, you know, the, the silo of, of pharmacogenomics. Um, but if you don't have that information stored discreetly, um, there's nothing stopping, especially with, you know, patients like me that have to move health insurance every few years, right? Yeah. Um, all employers are shopping that because it's a, it's a big expense. Um, those tests can get ordered again and again. Um, and if you put the infrastructure in, in place, uh, you're able to avoid that and also make sure that the patient's care uh, is optimized based on the information. Yeah. Well, I, I love what you're doing. Uh, I love to hear you talk. Very engaging. And you've been at this for, for quite a while on the entrepreneurial side, building this company. What, what keeps you motivated and driving yeah. Um, you know, I, it's it's the patients. I still get emails from some of the patients. Um, and I do miss actually talking directly to patients as I did way, way back in the early days. Um, but one woman in particular, uh, Elise, um, they thought that she had Alzheimer's and she actually had a drug gene interaction that when resolved made her Alzheimer's go away. Right. Mm. Um, and so it's it's at the end of the day, you know it's the right thing to do for patients, that it makes a huge impact on quality of life. And so uh, I'm not ending until, I'm not stopping until avoidable adverse drug events are a thing of the past. That's, a, that's incredible. Well, we thank you for the work you do. And I know the patients who are benefiting from this do as well. And we need more thought leaders like you to, to move that conversation forward with the right folks. So we applaud the work you're doing and thank you for being a guest on the Precision Medicine Podcast. Thank you so much, Jerome. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello or on LinkedIn at the Intervention Insights company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode.